Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. We also want to let you know that you can now join our patron program. It starts from £5 a month to £10 or £20, depending on uh, what you want. Each tier allows you slightly different levels of access. Uh, depending on which one you choose, you can enjoy early access to podcast episodes, exclusive member benefits, merchandise, shout-outs, and your chance to feature on one of our shows. Any support you can give us is massively appreciated and will help us grow and continue to bring cool content to race fans all over the world. Uh, You can find the link on our socials. Just search for Motormouth or go to patreon.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe and you can also leave us a review. Download the Motormouth app where you can get live race times, exclusive video content from MMTV. Create your own social profile and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. Welcome to episode 18 of the Motormouth podcast podcast um, alongside me but down in Essex as always is thespian motorsport guru and bearded beauty Harry Benjamin good evening Harry good evening to Tim how are you dealing with uh, what day are we on of isolation now can't recall uh, I have no idea it feels like about 100 to be honest with you I've completely had enough of it and uh, maybe by the time this gets released we'll all be um, down the pub but I have a feeling we could be doing this for quite some time I just can't wait for the pub session after this is all over. That's no. going to be uh, that's going to be a fun one. Um, shall I uh, shall I introduce today's guest? So today we are joined by a man who's currently um, eleven thousand miles away in the lovely country of New Zealand. Um, in recent times, our guest Brendan Hartley has competed in European Le Mans, Bathurst twelve hours, the twelve hours of Daytona, the twenty four hours of Le Mans as part of the World Endurance Championship with Porsche in the nine one nine hybrid, alongside Timo Bernhard, an Antipodean colleague and friend. Mark Webber. He would go on to not only several podiums, but the overall championship not once, but twice, winning the 24 hours of Le Mans along the way. Porsche left endurance racing at the end of 2017, and Brendan found himself making his Formula One debut in Austin that same year before completing a full season in 2018. He would later return to Porsche to prepare the team for their maiden season in Formula E before finally making his home at Giotts Dragon Racing. It's an absolute pleasure, no an honour to have a former Formula One driver, double WEC winner, Le Mans champ and currently Formula E racer on the show. A huge motormouth welcome to Brendan Hartley. Thank you so much for joining us, Brendan, from uh, yeah, from New Zealand, your home in New Zealand. What's it like over there? It's very early in the morning, isn't it? Yeah, t- thanks for the, the warm welcome as well. It was a bit over the top, but yeah, it's <laughs> very, I just got I just got up. I probably look like I just got up, although I always look like I just got up. Um, so yeah, it's time, nine, 10 past nine in the morning, uh, sunny day, but in fact, New Zealand's just overnight gone on to uh, full lockdown as well. Yes. So all yeah. have just been closed. Can still go outside to exercise, but um, yeah, we're on the other side of the world, but it's it's a very similar situation. And presumably, you're you're not based there during a normal race season. Um, this year is obviously a bit weird, but during a normal race season, presumably you you don't base yourself in New Zealand, or, or perhaps you do. No, really not. Um, it, I mean, my wife Sarah and I were, were very fortunate. We we spent the last couple of years designing and building a house, not with my own two hands, but we built a, a holiday home here. Uh, and that was finished in December. So we had all our friends and family over and, and um, put a party here at New Year's. So basically when, you know, when all the racing got, got cancelled over the last month or so, um, about a week and a half ago, I made the, we made the decision just to come back to New Zealand. It was, it was probably the, the most sensible thing to do. We're not living on top of each other here. Um, we, we live in Monaco for the, for the I mean, all year, yeah. in fact. We, we normally just come home for Christmas and New Year's, so roughly about one month per year. But I'm, I'm much happier to be here and yeah. not living in a, in a small one-bedroom apartment right now on, on lockdown. So I, I do feel for everyone who is doing that, and, and we're, we're in touch with a lot of our, our friends in, in the south of France. And yeah. I think we made the right call to come home, but it is, it's challenging times for everyone. <laughs> no, mm, a, a, absolutely, yeah. Now, um, you grew up in Palmerston North, um, an area of New Zealand I've actually never been to. Um, yeah, it's not as a tourist, you don't normally go through there. No, it, not, there's a racetrack there. Well, there you go. I was going to say, I mean, how, how does, a, does a young guy from um, Palmerston North end up getting into racing? So you had a local racetrack and presumably that's where you um, first stepped into a cart. Yeah, so 
I pretty much grew up at the racetrack even before go-karting. So my, my father raced pretty much anything you could think of. So it's a speedway in New Zealand's very popular, so dirt track ovals. He raced minis. He raced Formula Holden, um, which was a which it was a series in, in um, Australia, so single seaters. I, I always used to give Mark Webber a stick because he um, he raced against my dad at the <laughs> it was the very first Melbourne Grand Prix. Showing his age. The only bad Showing thing about it. it Mark, Mark won the race, so I, I, there wasn't, <laughs> you know, the, the joke could only go so far because Mark won the race. So, yeah, he raced from Atlantic. So, basically, he raced all sorts, and my earliest childhood memories were, were watching him, him race. Um, he was the kind of driver who had a bit of talent, um, but, you know, was just doing it out of the back garage. I remember the stories. One year, he, he, bought, he bought a from Atlantic car that KK Rosberg crashed and destroyed in New Zealand, <laughs> bought it and spent the whole winter building it up to race it the next year. So, you know, that, that was kind of, wow. uh, that was how, you know, he, he was successful in his own right, but never really had the funding or, or um, someone to fund him yeah. and take it any further. But yeah, he, he had a bit of success. So yeah, my, my earliest memories were being at the racetrack. And I also have an older brother, Nelson, who started go-karting before me. Um, so my, my father basically gave up his, his racing to um, you know, put me and my brother into go-karts, which was actually quite cost-effective back in back in that time. Um, I know yeah. go-karting is That's crazy, now. crazy money in, in Europe, but at least in New Zealand, it wasn't the case. My, my father, by trade, is an you know, engine builder, and we did everything ourselves, and I, I would be at, at, down at the workshop after after um, after school, rebuild the engine or, you know, putting it on the car, you know, we, we did everything ourselves and, and that, that was also the same going into to single seaters as well. So yeah, I was lucky to be in a motorsport um, mad household. Yeah. So uh, ru- definitely running through the, the family blood, yes. obviously. So what was the, the thing in your head that went, right, okay, I want, the, I want to do this professionally. Motorsport is my out and out passion. And I suppose in New Zealand, how high can you take that before you, you have to make that inevitable move to, to Europe or to America, I suppose? Um, yeah, it's funny because as a young go-karter, I always told everyone I was going to be a Formula 1 driver. And I think that's the beauty of being a young six, seven-year-old. Seven you don't, you know, sky's the limit, right? You know, you, yeah. you drink big and, and you, don't, you don't really see all the, all the potential limitations and, 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 you know, roadblocks. So... Um, looking back, you know, it was, it was probably completely unrealistic for me to believe that that would ever happen, but, um, it did. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I, I know it's, it's incredibly cliche, but it's one of those things, yeah, dreams can come true and do come yeah. true. Yeah. In my case, it definitely was, but I'm, uh, I'm well aware that, you know, there was a bit of luck involved and timing and, um, I mean, so many people along the way that, that helped make that happen. But yeah, I mean, it was, I, I mean, I'm just thinking back, you know, when you're a five or six year old, um, starting go-karting. I, I think the thing I enjoyed about it the most was the competitive side of it. Um, quite quickly, I realised I was I was quite good at it. Um, I obviously had good equipment because my, my dad was an engine builder, so we always had good engines yeah. and, and, and good parts. Um, but I think what what really grabbed me in was the competitive side of it. I, I, I hated losing, and I loved I loved to win, and and it was that competitive um, element of of man and machine yeah. working together that. Yeah, I, I um I just had the bug for so you know every single weekend maybe not every weekend but um we never we never went on holidays it, it, everything we did as a family was was going racing. What was the uh, the 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 spirit between you and your brother like? Because you mentioned he was also casting. So when what was the competitive nature like between you two? It's funny because we we we've never actually raced against each other. Oh uh, really? <laughs> yeah. So he he's four years older than me. So. So I, sorry, I tell a lie. I, and, and this is something that always stuck with me is I, I remember my very first go-kart race as I think I just turned six or maybe I, I was still five, but I just turned six. And, um, you know, dad rolled out um, this go-kart. I'm sure it wasn't quite as good as, as my brother's, but I remember that the first test day um, I got, you know, I obviously was not as quick as my brother had been doing it for four years. And um, we were racing the next day and we got the carts back to the, to the home and, and I remember looking at both carts. Okay, we've got different gears. We've got different NASA. And, you know, we, I started looking for why his cart was different and, and, and why I wasn't fast enough. So it, what I'm trying to say is that I realized my competitive nature all the way back then. It's funny, um, isn't it? It's just some day I got lapped by my brother. There's no, you know, I mean, I was... Oh, no. Well, fine, but <laughs> it was just the fact that I was already looking to how I could gain an advantage, and not just from myself, you know, that, that, that man... Uh, 
man and machine, that combination. So, you know, already from my first weekend, I was, yeah, competitive bastard, but also, yeah, look, <laughs> looking at the machinery and, and trying to find an excuse here and there. And <laughs> you, you ended up moving to Europe after some success um, in, uh, in New Zealand, around 16 years old. Who did you come over with and, and what can you remember what was going through your head at the time? Were you just thinking, this is amazing, I'm about to live my dream? Or were you terrified? I mean, that's, that's a huge leap to make. Yes, I wouldn't say I was terrified. Um, but I also didn't really know what I was in for. So I guess to give you some perspective, um, I mean, my, my geography skills were, were awful. You know, I'd spent... Um, you know, I was, I was a pretty decent student. I was top of my school in maths, scraped through in English, scraped through in history, didn't speak another language. Um, and then at, at, at 16 years old, I, I left school and, and was traveling across the other side of the world to, to Europe, to countries I didn't even, you know, hadn't heard of or yeah. couldn't even locate them on the map. Um, and I guess they were, I'm just trying to think where I'm going with this. I, I was never scared, but when I look back, I'm always kind of surprised that we didn't question it. Like yeah. even, even from, from my parents' point of view, you know, you know, I, I was 16 years old and, and that was looking back, that would, that must've been a huge decision for them to, yeah. to allow me to, to hop on a plane. They weren't coming with me. You know, I, I come from a very, you know, modest family. They, they, they couldn't just you know, stop the business and, and come across the other side of the world. You know, I was, I was off on my own to, wow. to Europe, oh my God. um, never cooking a meal in my life. So, I guess at that time being 16, you, you don't, yeah, you tend not to fret and stress about all those potential challenges. And, yep. and yeah, it was, it was exciting. But what I wanted to say was that there was never a second thought. Um, I had this opportunity to come up with Red Bull. So I, I, I'd been um, pretty successful in New Zealand motorsport. I had, I had some, some, some great support from, from New Zealand um, companies and, and businessmen, um, you know, helping me in my, in the grassroots in New Zealand. But taking that next step to Europe was in some ways unachievable. You know, that's just the level of funding you need to come to Europe was, yeah. was, uh, was, was on another planet from what, at least from where I came from. So, so, so you, when this Red Bull, um, Red Bull junior team contract turned up, um, first of all, I'd never seen a contract in my life. So reading it, that, that was quite daunting, you know? Um, but then the actual decision to, to leave home school, friends and family to Europe, it, it just was never a question. And even for my parents, which I think, like I'm just, I'm trying to consider now if I had a 15 year old, would I yeah. let them travel to the other side of the world by themselves? And it would be quite a hard question to answer. So I, yeah, I, I really appreciate what my parents let me do, but it, it was, it was so much of a dream and an opportunity for us that it was never, yeah, never a second thought. I guess they must've seen the <clears throat> the passion that you had for it and, and thought this is too good an opportunity to turn down. But it's like you say, it's a huge thing. I mean, I, I first went traveling when I was 19 to New Zealand um, on my own and I thought that was a major thing to do you know and I was kind of surprised my parents let me do that at 19 years old um, but to travel to um, Europe at 16 to pursue your dream um, they obviously saw something that um, that in you that they, they felt was worth pursuing but um, nevertheless a huge move so when you came over to Europe where did you settle and who did you settle with who were you living with you know what did you do for a living arrangement so some people will laugh the people that have been um, there will laugh but so I first went to a small town in East Germany called Oschersleben. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Do you know it, Harry? So, <laughs> I know Oschersleben. There's, there's a, um, there is a racetrack there, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, a, a small town called Oschersleben, and there's, there's a racetrack there, and that was the team I was racing with. That they were based out, out, of, um, out of that racetrack. So I, we lived in a little industrial st- estate about two kilometres from, uh, from the racetrack, um, I wasn't old enough to have a, a license to, to drive a car in Europe, although I was in New Zealand. So we had push bikes. Um, we'd, we'd go to the uh, workshop many days of the week, normally to clean tyres and do other bits that the, the team members didn't want to do. Um, but yeah, it was a, so. Yeah, you asked who I was living with. Um, we we had, I wouldn't call it a house, but you know we were like, we, we lived basically under power lines, and it was in an industrial state, so there was businesses around. But we had kind of a room each that we could lock the door to, and there was a shared kitchen. And I lived with another driver, John Edwards, yeah, who is an American driver. He's uh, now professional for, for BMW. Um, another Australian driver, uh, Nathan Antunis, um, and one of the mechanics was living in the in the, the complex as well. Um, 
we had fun. Like, you know, we'd, we'd sometimes hop on the train to Berlin on our push bikes and, you know, tear, tear up the city. And, you know, the, the, the closest city was Magdeburg. I mean, we had fun, but no one spoke English there. Um, it was all oh, no. really foreign for me. Did you, did you pick uh, up any of the, the local lingo? Um, that's something I'm a little bit embarrassed about, I have to say, is language was never a strong point for me. I can understand a little bit of German, but I really couldn't hold a conversation. And when I look back and, and the fact that I did spend quite a bit of time in Germany and, and even recently being in, in German teams, um, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I never took the time to, to and throw myself into learning another language. Um, but yeah, I don't think you're alone in that one for, that, for anybody. That's really. probably one of my very few regrets, actually. But being a New Zealander, like... I'll never forget being at school and having the option to learn another language and being a, you know, starting high school and teachers telling you, yeah, it'd be good for you to learn another language, French, Italian, German, whatever it was. And I remember just laughing at them like, no, I'll take music. What do I want to learn another language for? Like I just didn't, I did not see it back then. I I seriously, and then a year later, here I am living on the other other side of the world and going, oh crap, you know, maybe that would have been a a good idea. Oh, well, uh, you're not the only one, I think. Um, so let's talk about that that Red Bull contract that you uh, received, one of the, the main reasons for you heading over to Europe. How did that come about? And, and t- talk us about those early days within the Red Bull program. And because and, and, it's come a long way since then, I suppose, and what the structure was like. Yeah, so when I joined, there was 21, 22 drivers. Okay, that's um, well, still quite a lot, actually, then. Yeah, it was It was really a lot. Yeah, I, I think... So I... I I did the young, uh, sorry, the Red Bull Young Driver Search in Estoril. Uh, I think it was the same time Jaime Alguasari. I remember Sebastian Boemi being there. I think he was already a, a Red Bull junior. Um, I don't remember the others. Nathan Antunis was, was signed up on that day. Anyway, so my, our first Red Bull training camp, which, which were incredibly fun, in fact, um, was in, in Austria. And uh, there was 22 of us. I remember Sebastian Vettel being there and, and, and all sorts of others that, you know, that, have, that have done well since. Um, and they were fun times, actually, you know, mingling with, with 22 other young drivers or, you know, you, you're friendly with them, but you know that every year there's a, there's a turnover of about 10 of us and, and there'll be another 10 coming next year for the, you know, so there, it was, it was um, an interesting dynamic, but, you know, for me, I was, I was meeting all these, all these other drivers from all different stretches of the world, you know, cultures that I'd never experienced before. And it was, um, it was a fast learning curve for me, just being dumped into different cultures and different environments. And, and the racing environment was very different too. But um, yeah, it was some, yeah, I remember that first training camp at, at Red Bull. And I don't know who organised it, but it must have been a nightmare to, to organise 22. <laughs> <laughs> and did your, uh, did your hair go down well? Because I've seen some questionable hairstyles from you over the years, especially um, some of the older videos. <laughs> yeah, at, at, at that time it was uh, probably not as bad. So... <laughs> uh, actually, it's, I went to an all boys school, and we um, we had to have our hair, I think, above the collar and above the ears. So when I left school, I kind of just I just didn't get a haircut for a while, and it kept growing. And then, you know, people kept saying, "Oh, you need to cut your hair." And I guess I was just stubborn, you know, I was a stubborn bastard. And I was just like, "No, actually, I don't believe it." You know, so over the course of three years, it just it got awfully long and I look back at those photos now and I'm like, I mean I'm not embarrassed I'm like what was I what was I thinking but in some ways it was a bit of stubbornness I was and but there was a there was a part of me that wasn't stupid and that I remembered um even if you know I would sometimes say even if it looks a bit silly people remember me and, and well, it was that's true the thing. You, know? you stand out don't you? like I might have looked I might look like a clown but people remember <laughs> me. And there, there were times there were times in my career like oh yeah I remember you yeah the one with the long hair like, you know yes what? it actually helps yeah 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 you yourself apart somehow and I didn't Not realize so- it at the time but it wasn't like I, I said it to myself a few times but it, it ended up ringing very true Mm, not to think of all the money you'll be saving on haircuts as well that you can uh, yeah, exactly. plow into your racing career. But I luckily, I didn't cut my hair for years. Like, that's, wow. That's do you me- how long are we talking here? Do you think like over two? I don't know, a year and a half at least. Yeah, oh. maybe, yeah. Oh, it got God. pretty long. <laughs> <laughs> But well, during well, as as we said, you know, uh, you're saving all that money from uh, from the barber. But as we've touched on already, <laughs> especially he wasn't a lot, but especially young races coming up through the field. You need you need money. You need sponsorships to to make to make the progress and to get to those higher echelons of motorsport. Red Bull program is there for you to help power you up through through the junior formula. You know you've done uh, Euro Cup formula, uh, Formula Three, British Formula Three, and then I suppose is that first big break in two thousand and nine 
being confirmed as a as a reserve driver for Red Bull and Toro Rosso in Formula One. How old were you when that happened? Um, was that eighteen or nineteen? I think. That, and and that that's incredibly young to 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 be you know well I suppose these days you've got Max Verstappen and people like that now you, the age has changed doesn't it? But yeah. for, for that time that must have been quite a remarkable achievement. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't see it at the time. And in some ways it probably happened all a bit too quickly. Um, I definitely wasn't prepared to be an F1 driver at, at 18 or 19. And, and I know Max came in and did it, but you know, hats off to him. I, 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 wasn't, um, I wasn't prepared for mm. it. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, just touching on Red Bull, I mean, they, as you say, in, in, in motorsport, you need a bit of funding behind you and... and I didn't have that from my my parents, but I absolutely had that from Red Bull. So they, they gave me that that huge opportunity, and, and so did others in New Zealand. You know, to get to get myself to where I was, um, you know, ready to be picked up by Red Bull. Um, but equally, I I, I have, um, in fact, I'm still uh, you know paying back shareholders. I had people that you know, you know, fellow Kiwis who put money into me not not looking to make a return but just looking to help out and and i'm still paying them back today because even to be in europe even if we weren't paying for the racing just just the living expenses and yeah and, and you know it's high for a young a young fellow like me not having an income and my parents not being able to do it so i've been incredibly lucky not only to have red bull but a lot of other supporters and uh, around me to to get me through those those tricky times and and that that is where motorsport is different from um, a lot of other sports where, yeah, there is a certain level of funding and, and family support or it doesn't really, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people talk about the, you know, rich kids and oh, okay, it's daddy's money, but I'm, I'm, I have a little bit of a different thought on that because, you know, I, I had, I had Red Bull support, you know, there's still money being spent from somewhere, you know, okay, mine didn't come from my parents, but you know, I, I had Red Bull support. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I feel incredibly lucky that I, that I had that, um, that support and, and uh, coming through, but yeah, sorry, you, you mentioned about um, 2019, and it happened probably yeah it happened a bit too quickly. So my second year in Europe, I won the Formula Renault Two Liter Championship, which back then was you know that that was that was the big thing in the Up and Coming series. It was I think 40 cars in the field, and that was a big success. And I think what happened after then, it just I just moved. It just everything happened a bit too quickly. So I went I went to Formula Three. In England, um, I would, would argue, you know, I think I think I maybe had the most wins and the most polls, but I made a lot of stupid errors. That was the year that Jaime Algasari won. So we, we were teammates, and I just didn't really put it all together, even if, if the, the speed was there. And But what happened the year after that was probably I needed another year to kind of grow and, and, and figure everything out. But I was then thrown into... European Formula 3 with Carling, who, who didn't have a lot of experience in, in European Formula 3 at that time. I was thrown into World Series by Renault, um, the Renault 3.5, the same year. So I think I'm talking 2018 now, sorry. Yeah, so 2018. So, yeah, so... 2008. Sorry. <laughs> it is early here, but I have to say that. <laughs> no, uh, don't worry. <laughs> right, let me get my years right here. No, sorry, 2009. 2008 was... Right. Okay. 2009. So... Formula 3, World Series by Renault, never driven the car before. So that's two championships already. And at the same time, I was made the, the Formula 1 reserve driver. So I had three calendars and I was, you know, 18 or 19 years old. Yeah. And to be honest with you, it, it was too much. I got mm. burnt out. Um, I hated being at the Formula 1 track. I, I never really knew my role there. I was sitting in on meetings. I, you know, and, and, and at the same time, the, the racing wasn't going very well at that year and it starts to be a bit of a downward spiral. You know, you, you're doing too much. You're not focused on one thing. You're in the F1 paddock. And, and that, was, that was probably the year which was a bit of my, yeah, a bit of a downward spiral, a bit of a dark time. I stopped enjoying it. And, um, yeah, it took a while to recover from that. You know, in 2010, the next year, I, I lost my drive at, uh, at, um, in the Red Bull Junior Program. And I kind of had to find myself again, which which was a big thing. I had to go and make my own decisions, um, pick up the phone, get the whiteboard out, figure out how I turn my career around. Cause all of a sudden I was in a situation like, okay, well I have to make this work now. I'm on the other side of the world. I've got an opportunity to, to turn it around. And, and um, that's another story, but I think, yeah, what, what, what I'd say is it probably happened a bit too fast, but too soon. I wasn't prepared for that level of, of pressure and, and, and busyness. And I'm probably ranting on a bit, but, 
yeah, as, as a 19 year old, when you're on a plane every single week and just not having time to digest and think, and yeah, I just wasn't prepared, mate. So, you know, big mm. respect to, to the likes of Max Verstappen who, who was able to do that at, at 19. I mean, he's a bit of a, a, a bit of a freak of nature, isn't he? And, and I think some other young, I'm not trying to take yeah. anything away from him. He, he, he's done. been incredible. And, and there have been some young drivers who have tried to rush into the sport, probably off the back of his success at such a young age, but he is a bit of a, you know, a once every 10 or 15 years kind of character, but I don't think you're alone in feeling sort of overawed and burnt out by that kind of scenario. And, you know, we see in the F1 paddock, you wander around and you, you see young drivers coming through is standing in the back of a garage, looking looking lost and thinking you know what yeah, what, what is my role what am i doing here and, and you do see it, well, it simulator as well mate simulator on top of those programs yeah, for, yeah. For it's a lot of responsibility it's proper sort of sink or swim stuff but you're not fully developed as a driver or a human being at 19 years old yeah. um so it, it's a very tough scenario but then what was to come um I doubt you probably even imagined at this stage, but where did the transition happen where you started to look into the LMP route and and end up becoming a double um, WEC champion Le Mans winner um, in this sort of few years purple patch that you had? Where did that transition from single seaters move into LMP? Yeah, so... Uh, post haircut. (laughs) Post haircut, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, doing... Sorry, during 20... 10 when I lost uh, my drive at Red Bull. So that was what, in some ways it was a bit of a relief, like a relief. I knew it, was, it wasn't going well. I wasn't happy. Um, I'm not saying I wasn't happy with, with, um, with, with Red Bull. It was just, you know, the situation yeah. it was a bit of a downward spiral. So it almost felt like a bit of a new beginning. And um, I started picking up the phone. Um, I had great advice from a, from a, a long time supporter in New Zealand to look, get the whiteboard out, write down every contact that you have, and just start trying to figure it out. And that's what I did. And, and during the end of 2010, I picked up a few drives here and there. Same as 2011, I actually was still racing single seaters um, by, you know, picking up free drives, but, you know, dr- um, drivers that hadn't paid their bills. So they needed someone last minute yeah. and, you know, okay, well, who's on, out there? Okay. We know Brendan doesn't have any money. We'll throw him in. So had a few drives um, here and there for that. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm working like that. Um, and I also, I also went to Mercedes. So during, must have been the end of 2010, I um, I joined Mercedes as their simulator driver. Yeah. One, one of the simulator drivers. There was a couple of us. Um, and I did that for a good couple of years. And I, I think that was a good move um, because it, it kept me, you know, at the high end of, at the high end of motorsport and development and, and working with a Formula One team in a very professional environment. So I think that was very good for my development and it was, you know, I was getting a, a daily wage. You know, that was that was my wife Sarah was working at a restaurant. I was going every day to the simulator to basically put food on the table, yeah. and, and I think that was a good experience for me, and also kept me, you know, at the forefront of the technology and and, and development, etc. Um, you asked about the endurance. So how that happened was um, I was still very good friends with uh, Sebastian Boemi. Yeah, and I remember he came to Milton Keynes. He was still um, oh, he was in Formula One at the time, actually but was just leaving Formula One and just had just signed for Toyota and their return to LMP1. And I started asking about endurance and it's going to be, you know, I've said it before and it's probably, probably upset some uh, Le Mans enthusiasts, but I'd never had any interest in Le Mans. I I didn't know anything about it. I'd never watched an endurance race before, but here I was chatting to Sebastian about potential opportunities in endurance racing. And, um, I basically followed him to a test at Paul Ricard. I think it was early 2012. I took my helmet and my overalls and um, a bank account, which I'd saved up a few thousand euros from my work at Mercedes and speaking to a few teams about getting some laps in an LMP2 car. Um, and that was tough for me, arriving at a racetrack, not knowing anyone. It was. It felt like a new form of motorsport because... Yeah. In endurance racing, back then at least, there wasn't many young single-seater guys trying to do what I was doing. So, yes, people knew who I were, but it felt very separate, endurance racing and, and single-seater racing. Anyway, I, w- I walked up and down the uh, the pit lane in Paul Ricard. It was the uh, official European Le Mans Series testing. I met every single team owner, and I did 20 laps in an LMP2 car for Boots and Ginian. I paid, I think it was 1,500 euros. I, I you know, basically a new set of tyres. I did very well um, at, at, on the test. And during that time, I met um, 
a funny character called Greg Murphy, uh, Irish fellow who, who was running an LMP2 team. He, he was starting a new team. He actually remembered my stupid long haircut from back then. <laughs> hey, there you go. It's coming in handy. Winning. <laughs> and um, he liked the idea of putting a, a, a young buck from single seaters into his LMP2 car, his, his team that he was just starting. And I did my very first endurance race about a month later. And, and you know, that all stemmed from just, you know, arriving at the track with my helmet in hand and, and meeting every, every team yeah, owner. And making so that was a good happen. lesson for me. And, and that turned into more races, uh, um, we finished on the podium, you know, that turned, that, that turned into more endurance races. Um, and a similar story at the end of the year, I met an Amer- American fellow called Peter Barron, who had met me at Road Atlanta when I was racing LP2. He put me into his Grand Am car the next season. Um, and I, I all of a sudden found this new love for motorsport and endurance racing. Um, I never, never expected to love it so much, but that, that was true. Like I, I absolutely loved the racing. I loved the team side of it, the endurance side of it, the, the getting through the traffic. Um, loved everything about it. Did my first Le Mans 24 hour in, in 2012. And um, in some ways, yeah, felt this, yeah, like I said, this new love for motorsport. Um, I was just curious whether um, your, your particular style of driving, do you think that suited endurance racing perhaps more than it did single seaters? I don't know um, to be, to be honest. Um, did, did you have to? I, I did you see yourself having to adapt quite a bit when you got into that endurance car, or was it very much you know you're a racing driver, you can race anything? I think in terms of driving the car, no, because I, I like to look at a race car quite simply. You know, it's it's a car; it's got four wheels. The physics behind making the car, look, getting the car as quick around a track as possible, is kind of similar with with most cars. Mm. You know, obviously wings and slicks; it's very different, but. Getting the most out of a race car wasn't different, but yes, the style of racing and, and being patient in the traffic and reading, you know, all those situations is completely different. And that, I wouldn't say I gelled with that straight away. It took, it took me some time. You know, there's a lot to learn in endurance racing. Um, I, I, I don't know if my style suited it better, but what I would say is I, I really enjoyed my time immediately in endurance racing. And, and I liked all the, all the challenges that, that went along with it. Um, and presu- you asked how I, I don't know if you asked, or you, I think you did ask my, my journey to, to Porsche. But what basically what happened there was um, I sent an email, uh, I think during 2013 to Porsche. Like, again, I picked up the phone, I got a contact from someone. Um, I asked them to look at all my stints during my time in LMP2, and I, and I, and I basically said I'm the man for the job. And um, I never even re- expected a reply, but I was I almost didn't send the email, and um, a little. About a month later, I got a reply from from Andreas Seidel, who who asked me to come and meet him in in, in Stuttgart to discuss um, being part of their their Porsche their, their new Porsche LMP1 program. And that opportunity was 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 huge. Um, I had to test to, to prove my worth, but I guess the timing was was unreal. They were looking for someone young um, who had a little bit of endurance racing experience. Um, and, and I, I think I ticked a lot of the boxes and, and they, they took me on and that was, that was a huge opportunity there. And, and that was, I'm going to say that was my, my first real professional job, you know, in the junior team, I was never really professional. I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. Yes. I was a reserve driver. I was standing at the racetracks, but that was my first real professional job where I put on my Porsche overalls. You felt that pressure of being, yeah. you know, representing that brand. So you had a paycheck coming in, um, massive professional team that you know you you were part of trying to get the most out of the technology and development i mean yeah all those things that come along with being a professional that that was the first time i could yeah truly call myself a professional yeah and i suppose that that first wec championship that must have been clearly your your first real um sense of um not only belonging but also um complete euphoria um tell us a bit about the emotions that you were going through when when you uh, took your first WEC championship yeah i mean even just i'll never forget my first le mans not my le mans win but just standing on the grid at le mans in the porsche overalls looking down the um up and down the the, the grandstand seeing porsche flags waving and that that's um that feeling standing on the grid at Le Mans has never been matched. Even my first Formula One race. Yeah. I mean, a lot of Formula One fans will be shocked by that, but the feeling standing on the grid at Le Mans 
um, representing a brand like Porsche or, or now, now Toyota. I haven't, haven't raced for, for Toyota yet at the yeah. moment, but we don't know when that's going to happen now. It's been delayed. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that, that feeling and that energy on the grid is, is un, unrivaled anywhere in, in, in the racing world, in my opinion. Was, well, it's it's yeah, one of the, the, the certainly the top three, isn't it? I mean, I suppose you, you've got the Monaco, the Monaco Grand Prix, the Indy 500 and the Le Mans 24-hour. It's it, it doesn't get any bigger than that. And, and winning that race must have been just an absolutely astonishing feeling. And then to go on and win the World Championship twice, um, you must have been on cloud nine. Yeah, and... I, you know, not only that, you know, we had so much fun and um, I'll always look back and cherish those, those years at, at Porsche and the, the first, the first couple with, with Mark Weber and Timo and I learned so much from them and we had so much fun and we, we, we were really this, we had with such a good team spirit, you know, we, we were really a team, you know, it wasn't just three drivers driving a car. We were really had that team bond that I don't think many racing drivers will ever experience particularly not in, um, you know, if, the, if they're only in single seaters and um, we're in, in all the details and, you know, it was just, it was just, a, it was just an awesome time and awesome racing and it was competitive and, and yeah, it, w- it was, that, that's what made me as a driver, to be honest, that, that mm. learning from being in a car with two professionals and in a, a high pressure environment. Um, yeah. I, sorry, I'm kind of lost for words, but it, w- it was, no. it was an awesome time and, and that, that's kind of what took me to the next level as a driver yeah. um, after being in such a professional environment with such great teammates and looking, looking back at it now realizing that yeah the, it's you know it's, it's, it's kind of over but it, it was yeah I'll always look back and, and with with fond memories at that time yeah you let, let's let's just touch on on that ending obviously you know two wc championships and, and a, a le mans win and, and porsche leaving in in 2018 uh, so seventeen, sorry. Um, how how was the the build up to that end, and and what were you doing, you know, within yourself to to sort of look for the next steps? How how do you even begin after after having such highs and then having to go right? I've got to I've got to almost start, you know, not start again, but you've got to turn a new leaf in your career. Yeah, it was. I think we're all a bit shell shocked when we when we first had the news that that Porsche would be pulling out of the LMP1 program. Um, you know, we we're also invested, and in, as I just said, you know, we were also happy to be there and, and you know, enjoying the racing competitive side of it. Um, I'm just trying to remember exactly how it went, but you know, I didn't, I didn't panic, and, and it, I guess it was very similar to early in my career. I, I picked up the phone, you know, and, yeah. and <laughs> um, you know, Porsche were not throwing us out the door. You know, they were giving us opportunities to continue as Porsche factory drivers. It wasn't clear what that was going to mean. You know, there was, there was obviously GT, they just announced Formula E, but that, that's two years down the road. Um, and I remember sitting at home and, and uh, I think it was before the, the Hungarian Grand Prix 2017. And I remember that there was a, a young driver test after the Hungarian Grand Prix and it hadn't been announced who Red Bull or Toro Rosso was, was going to be using. And um, just had this thought, pick up the phone, you know, like, I've had all this experience developing cars at, at Mercedes um, and, and their Formula One program. Um, I've just been involved in Porsche. It's such a, it's a very, it was a very high level, you know, it's a very similar environment to Formula One in terms of team structure. So I called Helmut Marco up. Um, I hadn't spoken to him in, in years actually. And um, basically told him that if there was ever an opportunity, uh, I was, I was more referring to testing. <laughs> That's why when, when I called him up, I said, if there's, if there's an opportunity, you know, I'm, I'm a different driver than what I was uh, all those years ago and, and uh, I'm ready. And, and uh, it was funny when he didn't say much at the time. He, I, I could kind of hear as hear the cogs turning, so to speak. And, and um, he just said, okay. And, and that was pretty much the extent of the conversation. <laughs> two weeks later, he, he, he called me up and asked if I could come to drive the simulator in Milton Keynes. And without asking too many questions, I went and tested the simulator. They put me through quite an extensive program. I'm guessing they were testing me against others that they'd been in there. Um, I don't know who they, who they were, but I'm sure, I'm sure that was the case. And then another week later, um, they were, were talking about putting me in for the, my first Grand Prix. So, I mean, it, it really all happened within a number of wow. weeks. And I didn't see it coming. I don't, think any, I don't think anyone in the motorsport world saw it coming. Um, and that, that's, that's really the truth of the story that that's how it happened. Um, well, there's a bit more to the story too, because I I was, I was looking at IndyCar at the time as well. Um, I did, I did kind of leave that bit out. I, I think 
during that time, I, I was also yeah meeting with an IndyCar team. I, I, was, I was very close to, to being in, in the US. I'd committed myself mentally to driving on ovals and, and moving to Indianapolis. And um, and then at the very last moment, this, this opportunity to race Formula One came up and, and uh, I obviously took it. And in, in, yeah. the, in those, I think one day uh, I'll write a book. There's, there's a lot more to the story, and it, it was, it was. I think, yeah, it's, I it's, think it's, it, it sounds like it needs a book. Life. It needs a book. But, it's, it's astonishing already. Just listening to you talk, um, mm. you get fully invested in this story, don't you? It's, it's that's absolutely fascinating. And th- this relationship with Dr. Marco, yeah, the lead up, the lead up to that, that first Grand Prix. I mean, I, I don't want to go into it all now, but that was the craziest month of my life. Like, there, there's, there's probably some things I still can't talk about now, but how it all unfolded and happened and the stress that I was under to try and make that deal work. And it wasn't financially, it was because I had other deals on the tape. Yeah. I mean, one day I'll, I know my, my wife actually was writing down, like I was, I was on the, cause I was traveling and still racing for Porsche at the time. I was sometimes on the phone till three o'clock in the morning, looking at contracts. I was on the phone to Helmut Marko at all hours in the morning. And Sarah was actually making notes just because she knew how crazy. Yeah. Wow. What story was so I do have some notes there to tell the the full story one day, but yeah, it was it was a crazy. Your thing. your relationship with Dr. Marco um, at this point, what is the relationship like there? Do you end up talking a lot? Do you talk every day? Is it intermittent? How, how does that relationship look? Um, well, during that week, it was it was every day because we were we were trying to get this uh, it all sorted to race in my my first Grand Prix, and you know, this was this was no more than a week and a half, two weeks before um, the Austin Grand Prix. So we, we were talking every day to try and figure out all those details. And um, there was some other contract stuff that I just mentioned before that, that was incredibly complicated. Um, but yeah, and I, I always had a, I think I always had a, a mutual respect with, you know, with, with Helmut and, you know, he, he was tough. Um, I, you know, in my early career, I'll, I'll never forget the feeling I used to get when I'd, when I'd see the call pop up from Helmut Marco, my, my heart rate would rise yeah. 50 beats because it was, you know, back then it was never normally a, a good phone call. And I'll never forget when I, when I won my first race, maybe not my first race, but it was maybe the second or third race. I had, I had Helmut Marco call pop up and I thought, oh, great. He's going to say congratulations. And the phone call was actually, why didn't you win by more? So that, <laughs> that was kind of, you know, he, he was very hard on us um, as young juniors um, but I think when I established myself as a, as a professional, you know, he had a very, it was a different relationship and, and I always was able to have a good joke with him and I always respected that he was so straight and, and transparent. Yeah. You know, he, what he, what he, he meant what he said, which, which I liked and, and that can't be said for everyone in the F1 paddock. You know, there's, there's a lot of others that, that go through the paddock on their belly, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And at least with Helmet you knew where you stood and, yeah. and I liked that. And, what what um, you saw was what you got with him. For, yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, and like you say, I, th- I think motorsport's one of those sports where it's very difficult to find people you trust. And, and when you do meet them along the way, you've got to hang on to them. Um, let, let's fast forward then. You've, you've done the race in, yeah. in, um, in the, at the USGP in Austin and a, a brilliant, um, a brilliant event, a brilliant place to be. Um, 2018, you get your, your first full season in Formula One. And, and I think it's fair to say you had your run of bad luck. Um, I, I think I read on the F1 website that you hit a bird um you, you you got taken out you had engine issues suspension failures um you outpaced your teammate in the first of two or three qualifying sessions but still got flat from the media how did you deal with it in the, those first few races when questions are already being thrown at you about your future where, where was your mindset um going into the, the the middle part of that season yeah there, there was <clears throat> there were some tough moments um as you say yeah, there were some times that i was unlucky and um and yeah, the, the, the media are, are looking for a story, right? They're, they're looking, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm talking, I guess you guys are media too, but that, that, that was something that was hard to deal with. I wasn't used to being so much under the microscope, so much in the spotlight. Obviously, you know, professional career at Porsche was different, so to speak. You know, it was more about the brand, more about the car, the, the, you know, the team. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of cherished memories from my time in Formula One. It was, it was always my dream. Um, but there, yeah, there were some tough moments. I'm, I'm not going to lie. And, and there were some defining points there. And, and like you say, you know, you, there was, I, I mean, a, a Bahrain was an obvious one where my teammate Pierre 
think he finished fourth. And and we we had an incredible car that weekend. And uh, that was the funny thing about the midfield battles is, you know, anyone who followed it, sometimes we didn't know why, but every now and then we'd have this incredible car. Maybe it's just how the tyres worked and, you know, got into the window and Pierre delivered on that weekend. Um, I had a, I think I, I was one tenth or so behind him qualifying, but um, had a crash on the first lap, a drive through. It didn't work out, you know, and, and those little moments can be defining. You know, he's, he's all of a sudden had a top four on, you know, feeling terrible after the race for, for not, not scoring any points. So that, you know, when, when you've got one season or just a few races to prove yourself, that some of those defining moments can, can, uh, can really make a difference. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's fair to say after that, I did have my fair share of, 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 of bad luck and look, I, I don't, I don't want to blame all luck or, you know, individual people, whatever it is, but I did have a bit of a bad run. But what I would say is that I was quite, you know, looking back, I was proud on how I, brought myself back at the end of the season. We didn't always have a car to score on the points, um, but I actually got stronger at the end of the season, even un- under being under so much pressure. Yeah. After four races, I was being asked about rumours about being kicked out of the team. And when, when you know, I'd just come out of races, you know, out from my teammate, whatever it was. And I didn't feel like it was always just, but I had to deal with it. And um, I felt like by the end of the season, I did learn how to deal with that. And I actually got stronger and stronger. So, I was, I learned a lot from that experience. Um, I definitely could have done better at times. I was learning on the way, um, but ultimately I didn't, didn't make it any further. And, and what I would say is I, I, I don't look back and say, oh, I should have been there another season. I, you know, I should have this, should have that. In the end, I had this very unexpected opportunity to be in Formula mm. One. I have no regrets. I gave it my best shot. Um, there were a few key defining moments, maybe if, I hadn't have made a mistake there. If I was a little bit luckier there, you know, we would have had a better result and the momentum would have been with you. But there's always ifs and buts. And um, I gave it my best shot. And there are plenty, hundreds of other drivers out there that I know would be worthy of an F1 shot that didn't get one. So yeah, yeah. I I'm, I don't look back at it in, in, uh, in anger or any regrets. I'm not looking for sympathy. But it's, it's, not, just, it's not just the media as well. You know, there's, there's obviously big politics within the team as sure. well, um, which probably not interested to go into, to be honest, but, um, well, uh, what I did it, read it, 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 that not everyone, not everyone sees what goes on behind yeah. the scenes as well. Yeah. You, you, you did allude to that in your, in your article, your sort of farewell to Formula One, sort of stating that perhaps even from as far back as Monaco, you know, despite whatever the rest of the season entailed, you were probably going to be out at the end of the season. How, how, what was that about? Can, can you don't have to expand on that if you don't want to, but is there anything to expand on that? Um, I, I don't really feel like going into it. <laughs> there is politics involved in Formula One. Of course, when- yeah. It's, it's a, normal. It's, it's a lot of money a, involved. A there's game, a lot yeah. of people, you know, there's even in Toro Rosso, there, there must have been 500 odd people involved and, and uh, mm. egos and people trying to move up and, and, and all course. the rest of that. And um, it's a complex sport, you know, it, yeah. it's a very complex sport and it's part of the reason why, you know, we love it as well. It, it, it is it is complicated and, and um, but the politics side of it, I didn't always enjoy it. So. No, and of course, and that, that's always going to be the case. But when when you look at something like the Red Bull system, you know, at the end of the day, they've given you a massive shot in Formula One. So yeah. what, what do you make of the Red Bull system? Because we, we alluded to it earlier, you know, there's, there's pay drivers, uh, you know, who've got mummy and daddy's money, but then, you know, there's systems like Red Bull, you've got Mercedes now, you've got Sauber, Ferrari have got one as well these are essentially the same thing. So how do you look at the Red Bull driver program now, you know, with, you know, with your years of experience with it and outside of it? Well, I mean, I should only speak from my own personal experience, but without that system, I, I, I never, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I never would have had the opportunity to, to go and race in, in Europe. Um, so I think the, these programs are fantastic for, for bringing talented drivers through um, without daddy's money, as you said, but I, I want to be careful saying that because I don't think it's always fair. You know, you can, you can have a lot of talent, even if you're coming from a, from a wealthy family. Yeah, so completely. I don't think it's always fair to, to, to call out people like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, all, all I can say is I had my opportunities um, for the most part due to Red Bull. So I, I can only thank them for that. And I'm sure there's plenty of other drivers out there that are, that will tell you the same. So um, I think we're, we're very lucky in motorsport to have, have such programs to, to breed talent and, and bring them through. 
Now, Brendan, mm. before we uh, we touch on your Formula E exploits, we have a very important quiz for you to test your knowledge. Now, there is a leaderboard here. There are people on it. We were expecting big things, and I think Harry's been pretty kind with these questions, so I'm expecting you to uh, be uh, well what, up the leaderboard. What topic, mate? I'm, I'm getting nervous now. Don't be uh, nervous. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of motorsport in my free time, mate. I steer clear of it. So it, um, well, You're lucky, because these are all to do with you, so hopefully... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you're this is our uh, Motormouth quiz, notoriously the hardest motorsport quiz um, in the world. Uh, you, there's a maximum of four points up for grabs. I've got four <laughs> clips for you. Uh, we'll so play four questions. Four questions. four questions and basically we're going to play you four clips um, and after each one basically i just want you to listen and then tell me what you think is happening or what happens next so we'll start with clip number one mate if you get a looking fire what the f*** going on mate he's holding me on so much <laughs> beat me out as well mate <laughs> no I, I know exactly what that was yeah but... yeah go on then what's happening there um that was um in in brazil when uh, I, I was told my, my teammate was going to let me buy so i wasn't attacking him and uh <laughs> four or five laps he didn't let me buy and i was just getting a bit annoyed because one point, point uh, for you yeah. let's uh, let's move to clip number two Here uh, it now for this one i want you to think about where this is happening okay here we go are you okay yeah suspension failure that was Silverstone, mate. I remember that one well too. Happened yeah. quick. That that is uh, the, that the only I saw watching the the replay of the crash. It's very akin to I don't know if you remember the one uh, of of course your your mate Sebastian Buemi in the Toro Rosso back yeah. in China where both his wheels uh, came yeah. off. I shouldn't say this, but if every now and then I bring that video out, like we have a little group oh, yeah. chat with, uh, with with the Toyota drivers and. Um, because I, I just find it hilarious. I know, I know it was terrible what happened and it could have been worse, but you, yeah. you can see him trying to steer the thing like a boat. You know, like he's got no front yeah. wheels. He's trying to steer it out of the wheel. Always makes me laugh. But he, he still doesn't really laugh about it, which is great. So if you want to give oh, him a step, We'll definitely bring, bring that up. up. Uh, we'll bring that one up, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. All right, well, that's two out of four so far. You're doing well. Let's move on to clip number three. Here it comes. And he's got tangled up with Lance Stroll! Yeah, what so happened that, there? Well... Yeah, about, was it like three or four weekends in a row I had massive shunts and that was just one of them. So, um, yeah, I was on the uh, on the outside of Lance in Canada. I don't, yeah. Know yeah. I don't know the name of the corner, but I still, I still don't know if he actually had a puncture because um, I heard there were kind of – some people said he had a puncture, some people didn't. That was a big crash too, mate. I had a headache. And, um, oh, really? Yeah, big, big headache after that one. It didn't look as bad as, as the Silverstone one, but that one hurt more. Yeah. Well, you well, if it's any consolation, you get a point. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is looking I, good. I, miss, I must get another point for the most big crashes in a, in a Formula 1 season. That's a, a fair comment. <laughs> the, the, this, one, this one is not crash-related. Here it comes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're punching above our weight. Four and a half million people. Other side of the world, don't forget. Um, yeah, I don't know. I get asked a lot. I mean, actually, 2012, when I first competed in the morning, so what are you talking about there? Any ideas? What am I talking about? Yeah. My wife's in the other room listening, so I said punching above my weight. I, I, I might have been talking about that. <laughs> Go on, Mrs. Hartley. Um, no, I guess I was just chatting about all the Kiwis in, in New Zealand motorsport. I think that's what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah excellent. Yeah. So you've got four out of four there. Well done. That takes you to the top of the leaderboard. But actually, at the moment, that means you're tied with uh, three others. That's uh, uh, Ollie Webb. Uh, pretty nice to me, they weren't very hard, but yeah. Uh, there's well, there's no, the opportunity to go top. this question now. Um, can you tell me, for a bonus point, what year Red Bull first joined Formula One and who were their drivers? So, because they were first with, were together with Sauber, so you're, you're meaning as a okay. So as a as a fully fledged team. Okay, so I don't. I'm just trying to think of the year. So it was Mark Webber and no. Any ideas? It's tense. Oh, but Red Bull took over Jaguar, right? Yes. Tim, get your stats up. But hold on. So I'm just I'm just thinking about this. Yeah. First year. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm not going to get the bonus point then. Oh, no. 
Because um, if I, was, I give you I, one of the drivers, it's really bad. I was about to say David Coulthard and Mark Webber, so that's that's really well, bad. Well, that's one of them. That, you've got you're halfway there. Yeah. Who was one one of those drivers is correct. So you got DC. Okay. So DC. It's it's uh, it's a really. It, I mean, with all respect to the driver, it's a left field driver. It, it's not the first one that comes to your mind. No. It's a. I think that's half a point. Half a point. We need an out. Point. We need an out. Who was the other driver? Who was the other Christian driver? Clean. Christian Clean. Yeah, you know what? No, you said it. It's, yeah. Yeah. Any more idea on the year? Oh, the year. I don't know. Two thousand four. Oh, you're one out. You're one out. Two thousand five. Okay. But I'm going to give you half a bonus point for getting David Coulthard. So uh, that takes you, Brendan Hartley, to the top of the most amounts leaderboard with four and a half points. I'm going to give you some more applause. A small applause. This beats your double world championship winning WEC business. I'm sure it does. Um, on the TV, yeah. Let's, uh, um, let's bring it back to Formula E. Um, this is a topic of discussion that we often have on this podcast about Formula E, the merits of it, how good it is, how good it isn't, what people like about it, what they don't. And it, it is polarising. How are you enjoying it? Yeah, I'd say I'd be enjoying it a lot more if I had had more success, which hasn't really gone very well so far. Um, yeah, you know, as, as you can imagine, when you're doing well, it's uh, yeah. you, you're loving life. Um, when you're spraying champagne, it's, it's easy to, to enjoy it. But no, I, mm. I do enjoy it. You know, it's incredibly competitive, um, not only from the drivers, but also the teams. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of any other series out there that has so many manufacturers you know, fully, you know, OEM manufacturers involved and, and um, supporting the championship. And I think some of the, the the racing style with managing energy, there's this, it's very complex, but also it creates great racing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough, you know, like it's, it's been, it's been a tough entry for me and, and, uh, you know, Dragon, um, Geox Dragon, uh, really like the team, um, but we are a smaller team and I think, you know, we're, no one's hiding the fact that I think we're, we're definitely the smallest team that, that is, we're creating our own drivetrain and, and we're, we have a lot less staff than, than the likes of these, these big manufacturers, but we, we still believe that we can, you know, hopefully challenge a bit when we do get racing again. Um, but so far it hasn't gone to plan, you know, um, but we, I think what we do have on our side and being in a small team without the same restrictions of being manufactured, you can be a bit more dynamic. But yeah. hopefully now that we, we actually have a couple of months up our sleeve to, to work, we, you know, we, we have all these great ideas, but not enough man hours and yeah. time to, to implement them. So hopefully with a couple of months up our sleeve, we might be able to fight back. But I enjoy it. It's, you know, a lot of people worry about um, electric cars not being exciting um, to, to drive. And, and my argument there is once you get used to the fact that there's no engine noise, uh, an electric motor is incredibly exciting to drive. It's yeah. very, it's very direct. Uh, sitting, sitting in the car, you feel more at one with the drivetrain than you do in a, in a, in a combustion engine car. And, yeah. and the way I'd explain that is that you have a more of a direct link from the throttle to the accelerator. You know, there's no lag. You have instant torque, instant power. So you have this, this, very direct link from from what you're doing on the throttle pedal to to the to the um, electric engine. Um, another thing I'd say is you take away that sound, but you you all of a sudden get all these other cues that you, you you've never had before. You yeah. can hear the tires screeching. You can hear the car bottoming out. You, you hear this wind noise. So you become more in tune with with other cues um, that you haven't experienced before. So it, it's um, it's definitely. Oh, and one other thing to mention: we have a lot more power than we have grip. So there's there's no, yeah. there's no, there's no issues there. We we are fighting those cars, but no, it's, yeah. it, I think it's exciting, and I think what it does do is is it it displays and, and advertises um, electric racing, yeah. electric vehicles, um, in an exciting manner. You know, I think it wasn't that long ago when everyone saw electric vehicles as very boring, and and I and I think that that's changed in a very short amount of time, and. And as has the technology and development of, of, of the cars in a very short short amount of time, I'm yeah. sure that's going to be no different in the next years. Yeah, no, it's great. Time. I mean, we, we my opinion of it has has changed. I mean, I, I I've said for a long time when it first came out, I wasn't the biggest fan, but I'm I'm certainly warming to it. And we, we spoke to Ollie um, Webb not long ago, who's who's had the opportunity to drive um, in a couple of Formula E. Uh, cars yeah. and he's he absolutely loved it he he was waxing lyrical about it couldn't couldn't get enough of yeah. it so um i think for, as a driving experience it sounds utterly amazing um and and you know 
they've they've done incredibly well to get it to where it is and and you know whether it, it it's it's the future or it's a passing phase or you know whatever it ends up being i think it, it provides exciting wheel-to-wheel racing and that's what everybody wants to see yeah and what what i didn't even mention was the fact that we're we're driving in the heart of city centers yeah. that, that never seen motorsport before on arguably some of the most difficult tracks we've ever seen before so th- there's that element too you know we, we the, the series has been able to take electric racing to, to places that it's never been, sorry, racing in general to places it's never been before. So that, that part of it also is exciting. Um, like I said, I, if, if I was sitting here after spraying a bit of champagne and, and having a bit more success, yeah, um, it would be a different story. It has been tough. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I'm remaining positive that mm. that as a team and, and we, we can you know maybe still turn it around we'll, we'll touch well, fingers crossed when and if we get back racing uh, this year it will be yeah. uh, an upward uh, incline um do you have a uh, a hero uh, racing or otherwise um say no as a short answer but as a young fella um for reasons I don't, I still, I still don't fully know why, but I was a massive uh, John Lacey fan as a kid. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so I think he was sporting the same number as, as um, me at the time, which was twenty-eight. It was a young go-karter. So I was a Ferrari fan, and I think I was always, you know, I supported the underdog. You know, there was, you know, Schumacher yeah. always winning the races, and yeah. I was supporting John Lacey. So um, I, I was a huge John Lacey fan, and I've actually, you know, met him a few times in the paddock, and it was quite funny as meeting him when. You know, it's very different. It's, it's funny meeting someone when he was kind of a childhood hero, so to speak. But, uh, you know, in terms of racing, I, you know, I wouldn't say I have a hero. I've got a, obviously a lot of people I look up to and admire and fellow competitors that I that I have respect for. But um, it, as a young fella, I supported John Lacey and had the Ferrari flag on my wall. I think that's a good shout. I'm, I'm with you on John mm-hmm. Lacey. Um, okay, what are you rubbish at? Oh, um, dancing. Hmm. Oh, not going to see you on, really on strictly answer. come football? dancing football. Okay. Ah, oh, another, another, I'm not bad. Football. I'm not bad with, um, like, you know, with the hands, like throwing a ball, juggling, all that kind of stuff. But with the feet, I never really played, uh, never really played football. Fair enough. But well, do you have any talents that perhaps the, uh, the public aren't aware of? I think it's going to be guitar quirks, unusual quirks. I fancy myself on the mountain bike. I, I mean, that's, I love riding my mountain bike. I'm not going to yeah. say I'm well fast, but I, I guess I can surprise <laughs> a few people on, on two wheels. Um, <laughs> I actually, since we've been in lockdown, I just bought a guitar, ordered it in. So I've, I've just started playing the guitar again. Uh, I'm not particularly good, but I do enjoy playing it. Well, I'd say one, to learn. one hidden talent that was quite funny, um, almost I didn't know I had it either, was uh, on the, we, we had a Toyota um, race, uh, training camp with all the drivers and upper management uh, about a month, oh, sorry, two months ago in Austria. So it was a winter training camp. So I've never really skied in my life before. I've never, you know, haven't done a lot of the winter stuff because I, I'm basically chasing the sun. I come home for summer and over Christmas and I go back to Europe for summer during the racing season. Um, but on one of the days we went to play ice hockey. Um, so I kind of, t- I told everyone, look, I've never really been ice skating before. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. I hopped on the ice and, um, yeah, it was a bit of a hidden talent. So <laughs> hidden even to you. <laughs> I used to play roller hockey as, uh, a, as a young fella. Um, oh, what's that? I used so to play this. ice hockey, but on, on rollerblades. Oh, okay. So I, Incredible. I, I played I played for about four or five years. I, I, rep, I, didn't, I didn't tell anyone at Twitter, so don't mention it. I actually represented my, 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 uh, my local town. And the, so I, I was decent, but I never, I kind of didn't realize 20 years later, hopping on ice, that it was all going to come back. And, I think I really pissed all the other drivers off because everyone's kind of struggling just to stand up or even hit the puck. And here I was doing slap shots and flicking in the top corner. And so that was a bit of a hidden talent that I, I actually got a bit of a bug for it. I'd love to hop back on the ice, but it's not an easy thing to. There's, to, there's um, a, there's a video coming here. I can see it, Harry already. So when I, when I was about, how old would I have been? I don't know, 20 something. And weirdly, tenuous links here my brother who's a kiwi he was over in the uk um one of the few times that he came over here and he came to watch me play roller hockey because i used to play a lot oh, you used to play as well. yeah okay. I, I played for a team called the beverly bandits and uh okay. i was the one of the youngest guys to ever represent them i got picked for great britain and then quit i just stopped playing but he came over to watch me play and i loved it and the same as you i could jump on the ice tomorrow 
and be absolutely fine and totally confident. I can just, this is wow. it. Harry, this is it. We're doing a video. Brendan Hartley, we're going, roller, yeah, but, we're going rollerblading. Well, so it's all going to happen. I've, I've potentially oversold my abilities. But <laughs> I do that all the time. I was nervous about going onto ice skates, but then quickly I realized it wasn't so different from the rollerblades. Um, but I, I absolutely loved it. Like I, I was thinking, I was trying to figure out where I could actually go and, um, you know, hop on the ice and, you know, hit a puck around somewhere. But it's, it's not easy to actually find that unless you live in Canada or... No, true, true. But rollerblading is great for your fitness. Get out. Oh, you can't. Oh, you, yeah, you could do that. Even in lockdown, you could go, go out rollerblading around the countryside. Right, Harry, I think it's probably time for our final four. Yes, actually, before we do the final four questions, I had one. I have one question that I just wanted. To, I, I didn't get the chance to go in earlier, but it was when you touched on your uh, simulator driving with Mercedes. When you were going in every day, were there signs of what was to come at Mercedes and and the World Championship years? Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that the team was incredibly motivated uh, even myself as a sim driver was doing long hours and and um you could just see you, you could see how motivated and, and how much they were they were pushing and i had i had a really good feeling there i, I enjoyed my time at, at mercedes and i'm sure a lot of the guys I'm, i was working with are still there today so yeah yeah i, I always had the feeling that they were they were coming yeah since I left, they've been very dominant. Yeah, I don't know if there's a... Yeah. <laughs> you laid the foundations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so we have a, a final four questions that we ask everybody uh, who comes on. Um, so I'll kick things off. Uh, what's got you excited at the moment? Playing my guitar again, because I'm not very good, but I, I want to learn a few, few new songs. Yeah. And, yeah. If you weren't a racing driver, what would you be doing? I really have no clue. Um I guess if you consider that it's what I've done all my life and mm. I even left 16, I have no idea. I mean, at this point, it's probably going to be something to do with racing because that's all I know. Um, Let's go hairdresser. Yeah, hairdressing. I wouldn't get to work. Um, how much of uh, your success is about luck? And how much is about hard work? I'm going to say 75% a bit of luck and, and right time. But at, at that same time, You've, you've got to make the most of those opportunities when they do come up. So I guess that's yeah. 20%. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very aware of uh, being in the right place at the right time. But also it does require you, yeah, like you say, requires you kind of getting that luck. I wouldn't say picking up the phone's hard work, but it's, it's, it is also about making those opportunities and, and yeah. trying to find them as well. Final question for you, Brendan, and then we'll let you have your breakfast. Um, what are you scared of? Spiders. Yeah. Oh, there's that's another one. A lot of people. It's spiders. I don't mind them. Well, depending on the spiders, Matt, I'm not. I'm not that scared. But you don't want to be near it. I'm like, yeah, you get the spider. And I'll, so you I'll get some you. big spiders out there. No, not really. That's no, but you, right, you know what you do oh, get right. out there. That's you... probably why I'm scared when you go to Australia and you see these big huntsmen. It's funny, like pe- people that haven't been to New Zealand think it's you know there's going to be snakes and crocodiles, and I think mm. we've got nothing that'll hurt you. you know? yeah. Well, that brings us to the end. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, fascinating right. to hear your story. You 100% must write a book. Um, and ah. um, honestly, it's it's been a real pleasure um, getting you on here. Thank you for taking the, the time out of your day. Um, stay safe out there. Um, we hope this all blows over quickly and we see you back on a racetrack soon. But um, huge thanks from both Harry and I and all our listeners. And um, we will see you in a paddock soon. Cheers, guys. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening and giving up your time for us. We'll be back with another episode soon. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, you can take a hop back in your chosen podcast player and find them all there. And don't forget, there's also loads more content on MMTV and the Motormouth app available to download on any device now. Uh, and to continue uh, to allow us to help create lots of cool content and to keep making these podcasts we want to let you know about our new patron program and how you can join it just starts from five pounds a month to 10 or 20 each tier allows you slightly different levels of access depending on which one you choose you can enjoy early access to podcast episodes exclusive member benefits merchandise shout outs add your chance to feature on one of our shows any support you can give us is massively appreciated and will help us grow and continue to bring cool content to race fans all over the world just search for us on patreon.com or you can find out all the details across our socials on twitter it's at motormouth underscore instagram at motormouth underscore official and on facebook just search motormouth like subscribe and review if you feel so inclined as well it really helps people to find the podcast but in the meantime from myself and tim we'll catch you next time 